Hey fans, welcome to the Outside the Zone, new and revamped podcast. I'm your co-host, Pav, along with Doc here, and today we have a very special guest for you, senior writer Rick Buecher from Bleacher Report, FS1, and many more. It's going to be a great episode, so we hope you love it. We're welcoming in Rick Buecher, a senior NBA writer and analyst. Rick, how's it going? Thanks for jumping on. Um, I'm Puff here, I'm joined by Doc with our Outside the Zone podcast. Pleasure to be with you. I hope you and your family are safe and healthy um, during this quarantine. Um, how have you been with all this and how are you keeping busy? I've been busier than, uh, than ever. It hasn't, I uh, wasn't sure exactly how this was going to go, but uh, Bleach Report has uh, been looking for more writing content uh, content than than normal. I'm still doing my TV duties from my home studio for for FS1. Uh, I'm writing a memoir with uh, Brian Grant, the uh, the power forward who uh, contracted uh, young onset Parkinson's, and uh, I have a five year old rescue dog that uh, needed surgery and we added a pup to the equation right before we learned that the older dog needed surgery so I've got my hands as full as they could possibly be and one benefit being out here in in Northern California while we've got very strict uh, quarantine uh, as strict uh, quarantine uh, levels as uh, or regulations as any place in the country. Uh, I, I, I live in a coastal beach town, so my ability to get outside and get exercise and fresh air is, uh, I think, is a little bit easier than my friends in more dense uh, urban situations. So I don't know about you guys, but are you, uh, are you, uh, how, how, how much of the, uh, are you living inside uh, as opposed to getting out and doing things? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, good that you get to live near a place where outdoors outdoors activities are available. Um, I actually just moved down to Houston, and um, Doc um, is in Cincy. I know he has a, quest- a Cincy question for you. Doc, are you there? So definitely a lot less outdoor activities out in Ohio than you have in California. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably no, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Um, my parents still live in Cincinnati in the house that I grew up in, and awesome. they're obviously older, and so uh, I've, I've been there. It would be a completely different situation if I was there and I was living with them because I'd have to be really conscious about what I was doing and what I was potentially bringing, uh, bringing around them. So uh, they, are, they are safe and sound, and they're following protocol. Uh, but and, and, it, and there's just the weather aspect of it too, right? Um, I mean... Uh, fortunately, the the weather out here has been has been pretty good and is generally pretty temperate. So, depending on how long this goes, uh, I, I, I have nothing to complain about for for where I am. It might be a different story if I was in the Midwest for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad that obviously you're being saved. Your parents are safe as well. Obviously, it's really good to hear. Um, so, like Pub mentioned, I do have a Cincy question to get um, things kicked off. So, obviously, you're from Cincinnati. You went to Walnut Hills. Uh, me and Pop are both Ohio natives, him being from Cle- Cleveland, me being from Columbus, and recently moving down to Cincinnati. 
But I just wanted to see how excited you are about Joe, Joe Burrow being drafted to the Bengals. Uh, I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest with you, because, uh, and I've always had mixed feelings about the Bengals. I've been a Bengals fan since I was a kid. Uh, but, uh, and, um, and Mike Brown is a Dartmouth graduate, as am I. And so I, I can't hate on Mike Brown the way most people can for all of the ills that the Bengals have suffered at his hand. And there's no doubt that they have. Uh, so I, that's, that's where my mixed feelings are. I, I, I love the pick of Joe Burrow. I, I, I love his personality. I think he's the real deal. I would take him over, uh, over Tua Tagovailoa. But are they going to put the infrastructure around him necessary to take advantage? Are they going to spend the money necessary? Uh, that's where I question it. And let's be honest, they are in a brutal, brutal division Baltimore's only gotten better. They've only loaded up more. Uh, Cleveland's going to be a monster. Pittsburgh's always a problem. So my my excitement over getting Joe Burrow is muted because I just don't know if he's going to be able to do or be all that he can be considering uh, who the Bengals are and have been and the division that they're playing in. Yeah, I mean, that's fair, but... At least for me, I'm just, I think we have hope, and I think that's more than we've had recently, so I'm all in. But, yeah, I mean, your concerns are 100% valid for sure. Thank you. So, um, just leading into my next question, though. So, getting back into the NBA, um, you started covering the NBA professionally in 1992. So can you speak a little bit about your story and what led you to pursue a career covering the NBA? Uh, well, I, I was always a, in spite of the fact that Cincinnati didn't have a, uh, an NBA team when I was growing up. Obviously, the Royals became the Kansas City Royals and then became the Sacramento Kings. Uh, I was a big, I was a big college basketball fan first. My, our, my next door neighbor was the secretary to the president of the University of Cincinnati. And so she had sweet, uh, court side, like mid court seats about 10 rows up at the old armory field house. The little band box, uh, where, where the Bearcats played. And that's where I first fell in love with the game of basketball. Um, I grew up playing soccer, actually. I'm first generation American. Uh, my parents are, are both German. So that was the sport that I grew up with and became uh, proficient and fundamentally sound in first. That's what I ended up playing through college. But I always, I always loved play. I always loved basketball and I always played, played through high school. Um, but uh, I, um, I, I, my, my whole ambition was, uh, first, I thought I was, since I went to an Ivy League school and my parents, we don't come from money, um, I thought I had to get a degree and do something that was going to justify uh, all the money that they spent on my education. So I was going to become a lawyer. And then I got an internship uh, with Sports Illustrated this summer of my junior year in, in school. And I discovered that, one, you could, you know, you could live a pretty good life and you could live wherever you wanted and 
the, the, the writers at Sports Illustrated, what they were, they were doing and, and how they were doing it, just that was the thing I, I, I sought uh, after that experience. And so I ended up uh, at one point taking, accepting a advertising job uh, with Leo Burnett in Chicago, uh, and then almost immediately after got an uh, offer to work as a uh, one-year editorial assistant at a little magazine in New England, in Dublin, New Hampshire, that produces Yankee Magazine and the Old Farmer's Almanac. And I asked for a six-month leave from Leo Burnett before I even ever got there to explore this this writing uh, itch that I had. And um, about three months into that, I realized this is what I wanted to do. So I did did that, finished the residency, uh, convinced them, even though I was an editorial assistant, to let me write a few things. Uh, probably the best piece or the, the, the most gratifying piece I did. All the, all the stories that you did for Yankee Magazine had to be based on some element in the seven uh, New England states. And the inventor of the wiffle ball happened to be in Connecticut, along with the original factory, and which was uh, like a warehouse that had these two machines that basically just spit out these plastic, <laughs> these plastic little balls. It was not, wow. not very glamorous. <laughs> and um, but I got to I, I I pitched them on this this. I found out that he was from you know the inventor was from Connecticut and pitched them on it. And so I went down and, and the framework of the story was playing wiffle ball against the inventor of the wiffle ball. And, uh, which was just a great experience. And it was like that, that solidified, this is what I want to try to do. And I want to try to do it in a George Plimpton-esque way where, uh, I, I, I get, I'm not just writing the story, but on some level I'm involved in it. And so, um, but then I, I still had to earn my chops and um, nobody in, you know, the, I, I thought I was going to go next. I was going to go to Esquire magazine or the New Yorker or something like that. And I had a portfolio of like maybe like four or five pieces. And that was all, those were all the pieces that I had written to that point, magazine pieces. And they said, uh, if you want to go, if you want to move quickly, you need to go work for a newspaper and write every day. And I thought that was a step down from already having written magazine long form. Uh, but I was lucky enough to land an internship in San Diego and ended up, uh, that internship turned into a full-time job. I was covering high school sports. Um, and that was really, really, really humbling because all of my, uh, my classmates were working for Morgan and Stanley, they were Stanley and Morgan, they were becoming uh, investment bankers or they were working for big advertising agencies. And here I am covering high school sports in San Diego. It's like, what the hell did I, what, what have I done? And, uh, but it was, it, it turned out to be the best experience that I could have ever had because it required me to learn how to do everything. I had to figure out which were the games that I needed to cover. I needed to figure out how to get there. I needed to introduce myself to the coaches. I needed to get to know who the players were and what their prospects were. I had to keep my own stats. Uh, I, I basically had to learn how to do 
every element of the job. And so, whereas I saw people and my, you know, my, my ambition was originally graduate, get hired by sports illustrated, jump right back into what I've been doing as an intern. And uh, the, the best thing that happened to me was that didn't happen. Cause I saw people who, who, who got their jump uh, right into sports illustrated or, or ESPN. And they always had the advantage of, the outlet that they were working for. If you work for one of those outlets, people are going to be more accommodating and just because of the power of the platform. And I had to be able to sell people on my story idea and me and getting them to trust me that I could tell their story and tell it well and that I had a good idea for what that story would be. And with that and understanding that and getting the confidence of doing that, uh, it, it allowed me to know that I can go work anywhere and I can dig up stories and I can research them and I can execute them. I don't need the, the, the benefit or the crutch of who I'm working for to make that happen. And I saw a lot of people who, you know, had the opportunity that I had or that I wanted, which was jump right into a big name outlet. And, uh, you know, some of them survived, but the vast majority did not because they didn't, they never had to grind. And so uh, that was the benefit of me um, going to cover high school sports. Now I got scared being in Southern California because I'd read, you know, Hemingway said, you, you, the young man goes to Southern California, sits down at 23 and gets up at 64. I was like, I don't want that to happen. I don't want like right. my life to pass right. with one long summer. And so um, a college buddy of mine got married in the Bay Area and I was in the wedding and I went up and uh, I fell in love with the Bay Area. And um, the San Jose Mercury News at the time was one of the top 20 sports sections in the country. And so I started corresponding with the uh, sports editor, sent him my clips, told him I was interested in working, working for him. Uh, he said, I don't really have anything available for you now, which I thought was a, he was kissing me off because uh, I knew that they had, the, the San Jose State beat was open. And I was like, I just want to get my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, God, if he doesn't think I'm even good enough for the San Jose State beat, man, this is going to be a long haul. Yeah. Um, but I continued to send him my clips. He would write me back. He gave me books to read. He, he, he basically, John Rawlings is the, was the editor. Um, he mentored me, uh, for two years and then said, do you, um, Hey, I, the 49ers beat is open. Would you be interested? And 49ers beat was like the poem job of the newspaper. I was blown away. Now, I was number three on his hit list, and it was only because the first two guys <laughs> turned it down <laughs> that I got my shot. But that right. brought me to the Bay Area. And then I learned a very valuable lesson, which is you have to have a passion for the thing that you cover. And I love, you know, I, I love the NFL. I love talking about the NFL. I do it now on FS1. Um, my, my view has shifted. But at that time, to be a beat writer, to steep myself in one team, uh, I had a passion for the NBA. 
it doesn't work for me to eat, sleep, and drink uh, covering basketball in the NBA. Football, especially with the 49ers being as great as they were, I was terrified every day that I woke up that the fan base knew more than I did. And here I am writing for them and supposed to be the expert. And I always thought I'm going to be caught out. You know, I'm going to do something that's going to expose my my naivete. And that scared the hell out of me. And I, for whatever reason, I didn't feel like I didn't feel that way with basketball. So. Um, I was able to, after a couple of years, transition over to the Warriors, and I came in the year they tanked for Chris Webber, nice. got to know Chris Webber, and that entire team broke a ton of stories over that time. That, um, that opened up the door for me to go to the Washington Post. Washington Post, I learned, I went to the Washington Post, and when I got there, they said, just give us a year before you go to ESPN. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing. I'm at the Washington Post, man. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm at the Washington Post. Well, why the hell would I leave? This is a huge, this is a huge step for me. I could, I'm, I'm here with, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. I'm, I'm like, I'm here with, with the, my, my, my desk is between Tony Kornheiser and Will, Mike Wilbon's offices. Like, what are you talking about? Like, wow. I'm going to go someplace. And it was almost a year to the day that ESPN the magazine reached out, and I ended up going there. What I didn't know that they knew was that the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the New York Times were sort of the fever program for ESPN at that time. That's where they looked first and foremost for their talent, <laughs> um, which is why, you know, Kornheiser, Wilbon, Rachel Nichols, um, Mm-hmm. You know, a, a ton of people came from uh, those three newspapers. So yeah. uh, that's how I got to ESPN. Uh, I was there for 14 years, and um, I got to a point where I had started a family. My kids were five and seven. I was spending more and more time back in Bristol, Connecticut, living in the Bay Area. And and I also felt like things had shifted from when I was there. When I went to the ESPN, the magazine... It basically, it was whatever you could come up with um, for a story idea. They were willing to give you a shot. They were willing to pay for you to travel wherever. And I went all over the globe chasing stories. It was a great time. When I became more of a TV guy and I was going to Bristol, it wasn't, it wasn't as challenging. It wasn't as inviting. Um, for the 14 years, they allowed me to continue to expand my role. And I was always learning something new. I went from being a writer to being a writer who's on TV to being a sideline reporter to being a regular on SportsCenter. There was always something new for me to, to learn. And I got to a point at the end of those 14 years where I um, I felt like, I, like I'm, I'm hitting my ceiling. I have a young family. I don't want to spend all my time in Bristol, Connecticut while my kids grow up and then they're taken off for high school. And I, you know, I spent that entire time on TV. So I left and uh, I'd had an offer to do a radio show in, in San Francisco. And I knew that that would keep me home more. And so I was going to do that. And I was still going to do some TV for ESPN, but they wanted to control exactly what I could do uh, outside of what I was doing for them. And I didn't, I, could, I couldn't give them that control over me. So I had to step off completely, did the radio show, did sideline for the Warriors for a couple of years, 
Bleacher Report came along. I started writing for them. And now I'm essentially Bleacher Report and FS1 and uh, uh, doing a little bit for Entercom and their new venture, Radio.com. But um, I learned that, you know, the number one thing is uh, get get your get your cuts in, get your reps in uh, as early as you can, wherever it may be. Doesn't matter the outlet, and um, and then be adaptable. You know, don't don't think it's got to be one way, or there's only one way to tell a story, or there's only one medium to work in. It's like you know, and I and, and I imagine. Um, you guys have gone through all of this because you guys have have, um, have created your own path. And I would recommend to anybody who's starting out, like that's the way to do it. If I was starting it, starting out now, it would be I'd be trying to create my own venture. I wouldn't be looking to go join ESPN. The technology is there to create your own platform, and I still think there's the value of like finding a way to be there on a you know, building relationships within the business, building relationships within the sport that you cover. I think those are all important. But as far as how you distribute your content, I think becoming your own entity is 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 the most uh, ideal way to go because it's uh, again you have control over how much content producing you can do, and I just believe the opportunity to do it. Uh, is the best teacher. Yeah, that's awesome. It seems like, um, thank you for sharing that story. It mm-hmm. seems like your yeah. passion um, and your ability to think create, creatively and outside the box is what separated you and made you so successful. And it's great seeing like starting from where you started that led you to being the successful person you are. Um, talking about a challenging time to be a reporter um, in today's age of the NBA with the coronavirus, um, yeah. everyone waiting, I feel like just all the connections you've built um, throughout your time is going to be able going to be able to give you the scoop on everything. So out of all the potential scenarios for the NBA returning um, from a bubble in Vegas uh, to waiting it out as long as possible to have normal games, what do you think is the most realistic possibility? Yeah, I can't imagine that we're going to that they're going to wait it out and have normal games. I think it's just going to take way too long to get there. Um, whether it's in Vegas or it's some other locale, and as of right now, everything I've heard, Vegas makes the most sense. Uh, I see them bringing all of the playoff teams and personnel together and creating their own bubble in one, you know, in, in one locale. Uh, Vegas makes sense because you could. You could have a closed circuit. You could have where you're, you know, everybody in in specific hotels. You are uh, transporting them to a couple of. They've got a couple of different, you know, facilities that they can use. Gyms. They've got they've got the, the infrastructure there to make it work. The big stumbling block, and I and I I just get the sense we're going to get there, which is the uh, the 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 availability of testing and testing with immediate results. That's the number one thing that they need. And not just to be able to take care of the personnel and the players and, and test them on a daily basis and quarantine anybody who tests positive, but that it's uh, widely available to the general public. Cause I think there would be some negative backlash if people are still unable that, you know, 
Joe public is unable to get tested and wants to get tested or needs to get tested and can't. And meanwhile, the NBA is testing its players on a daily basis. I think that would be a, a, a PR nightmare. And the NBA is generally pretty good in how it deals with, with PR. So, uh, but I think that that testing, that widespread testing is going to be available on a level where um, we can get back. And I think that this opening up facilities, while some of it is because uh, facilities are being opened up in places and the NBA wants to be able to protect its its players. So if, you, if guys are going to have the opportunity to go work out, we'd rather have you coming to the team facilities than going to 24-hour fitness. And right. so, I, you know, I think that's why they're moving in that direction. But I also think they're moving in that direction because they see a pathway to playing games and resuming this season. And I know that they desperately want to see that happen. Shutting it down is the last resort. It would be only because they have no choice as opposed to uh, finding some trunk, however truncated it might be, however different it might be. uh, Certainly there won't be fans in the building, but they want to find a way to put a bow on this season uh, other than just let, leave it open and have a huge asterisk on it. For sure. Right, right. I mean, I think all of us, you, us, every NBA fan is really hoping that, you know, our play can resume in some form. Obviously, none of us expect fans to be there, but, you know, it'd be great in some form or capacity if, you know, basketball can resume again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a great opportunity, too. I mean, you know, obviously, you look at, what the last dance documentary is doing and look at the NFL draft, people are starved for content. And, uh, you know, my biggest concern simply is it's probably not going to be very good basketball. And if you're jumping into the playoffs, uh, the potential for injury is going to be tremendous Mm -hmm. because guys are going to be going from, training camp into playoff level basketball, that is a huge, huge jump. And right. uh, and I don't know that there's I don't know that there's a way to prevent, you know, prevent the injuries that are more than likely to happen. But uh, you know, I, that that seems to be a risk that the NBA is worth is, is willing to take. What have you been hearing around the league regarding yeah. that? Um, for players or GMs, like, are they scared about even attempting it because of that fear, or how does that work? I have not heard that from. I have not heard that from any uh, GMs or executives, and and GMs and executives. Let's let's be clear. Like coaches, GMs, executives, they're all in a diminished place. That is, that is, that's one of the, the power shifts that's occurred in the NBA is it's now owners and players and owners and superstar players. Those are the top two runs of influence and power. And the owners desperately want to get back to playing. The players, (laughs) there is concern on their part. There's great concern on their part about will they be ready? Uh, How do they avoid injury? Could they suffer injuries that are going to impact them going forward? But on the flip side of that, there are also plenty of players looking at it and going, if we don't play again, we're going to lose a third of our salaries this year. And whereas with 
the labor stoppages, players and their agents could prepare, could sock away some money, knowing that they might go, you know, three, four months without uh, that that bi-monthly or bi-weekly uh, paycheck. There was no preparation for this. So suddenly losing uh, a huge chunk of money between now and the start of next season, I, I think would put a lot of guys in a difficult situation. And they're going to be willing to come back and play in spite of the injury factor. And it's not so much the superstar player. Like LeBron James isn't going to be affected by this. James Harden's not going to be affected by this. But right. uh, the, the, the rank and file, there's guys that would lose money potentially over the next three, four, five months that will never, that they may never see that money again. And so they're going to be desperate to play. For sure. Um, I mean, before we let you go, um, I did want to mention your article you wrote yesterday. You wrote, I mean, um, almost nobody's as plugged into the Warriors as you are. And you wrote an outstanding article about their chances of um, resurging the Warriors dynasty. Um, and I think a big part yeah. of that is hitting high on their first round pick, um, potentially someone like LaMelo Ball. Uh, what do you think about his chances of becoming a superstar in this league? Talent-wise, of all the guys uh, that are uh, in this draft, I would say he probably has, at least among the top three picks. I'll be honest. I generally, um, and this is particularly a a big issue with LaMelo Ball and R.J. Hampton, is that with them playing over the NBL and uh, and LaMelo not playing a whole lot of high school, his his amateur uh, or his his um, his career leading up to uh, going to the NBA has been a bit fractured as far as exposure. I generally don't judge uh, players coming into the NBA until I see them in the summer league. Up until then, I rely on all the scouts and GMs and the people that I know in the league, and I take their counsel. Uh, on on who can play and who can't, and I put it from their perspective. So just from what I've seen with LaMelo, uh, the little I've seen with LaMelo, he to me has the best basketball instincts, the, the, the most natural ability. What scares me is there's a, a work ethic that is required. He's not so good that he can't come in and, um, I mean, his, his decision-making, his, uh, his lack of defensive effort, his conditioning, all that has to be ratcheted up in a major way. And where he goes and who he plays for and the other guys in the locker room are all going to have a huge impact on whether he gets that or not. Like, if you brought him into the Warriors... That would be an ideal situation because Draymond Green and Steph and Clay are they're going to be living examples for him. This is how you go about the job. Uh, if you go to, I don't know, the Phoenix Suns, Cleveland, <laughs> um, completely different, completely Cleveland, yeah. different story, right? So, uh, and and whatever you're taught about how it is to be a pro that first year or two. That is generally, 
that can be the difference between a guy making it or not. For and sure. so I, I just, I, I don't, uh, I don't know that any of these guys, this is the thing that the, the, the documentary on, on the last dance and Michael Jordan reminded me or really brought to the fore for me is Michael Jordan had to earn his stripes in high school. Michael Jordan had to earn his playing time at North Carolina. Michael Jordan had to earn his spot in the NBA. Said it himself. He came into the Bulls as the, as the low man, lowest man on the totem pole. All of that has been taken away from today's players. Right. Like, LaMelo Ball already considered a star on some level. James Wiseman played three games in college. Right, right. And he's already a star. Like, so I don't even blame the players. Like, if people are already giving you the money and the accolades and the celebrity and they're giving you all these things, like, where's your motivation to, like, to grind? <laughs> you know, in, in the way that Michael Jordan didn't come into the NBA, like, with a shoe deal. Right? Right. That's a great idea. <laughs> so, it's like... We've stolen that from these young players. And in one way, you could almost say it underscores how remarkable it is that LeBron James has made himself into the player that he has. Because he did have a shoe deal right. coming out of high school, going directly to the NBA. And right. he's, still, he's still, you know, slowly but, but steadily made himself into one of the best players that we've seen. But Paul Anthony Towns... Um, Ben Simmons, uh, I, I can even go back to Tracy McGrady. Like, these guys, talent-wise, physically, monstrous talents. But did they hone their basketball skills, their mental toughness, their drive to be as good as they possibly could be? I don't think you would say that about any of the three guys that I just mentioned. For sure. Um, I mean, I have to ask you. Um, there you you mentioned in your article that GMs will be severely vetting uh, LaMelo and his father. Um, do you seriously think a team could shy away from drafting him because of LeVar Ball? I do. I do. I think the major, I think the major markets, I think New York, and New York already has RJ Barrett. I've seen, you know, I've seen the people talking about him going there. He should go there. I can't help but think that's planted by LeVar. LeVar wants nothing more than LaMelo to be in New York. And now that they've signed with Rock Nation, uh, which is yeah. New York based, mm-hmm. I'm sure they want that too. I think New York, I think the Knicks are too smart to, if, if it's, I mean, look at, let's just look at how visible or invisible LeVar has been since Lonzo went to New Orleans. He ain't going to New Orleans. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no media circus for him to jump into and think that he can sell shoes through uh, the the media in New Orleans. <laughs> so he's let Lonzo alone. New York is far away the greatest shoe market and and just uh, personal marketing vehicle that a player could possibly have. Swamps every other market. Um, so I think it was like 66% of the shoes that are sold in the world are sold in New York. Wow. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure, I have to go back, but it's 
it is this monstrous, like, you can't, and not even Brooklyn. Like, the Nets are different. New York. Uh-huh. If you're a New York Knicks, the power, the advertising power that you have is like no other. And if you're telling me that LeVar Ball would not be tempted to become, you know, visible again like he was with the Lakers, uh, I think you're sadly mistaken. And the Knicks know it. And they don't want it's Lamelo Ball is not so good that it's worth it's worth risking that. Yeah, it'll be it'll be very interesting to watch it unfold. Um, I'll grab my popcorn and, and see Lavar uh, do his thing. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, all right, Rick. One quick question before you before we let you go. Probably the most important question we've asked you these past thirty minutes. Um, so, when is the last time you have had Skyline, and what is your go-to order? So, I uh, I went. I visited my parents. Um, when was that? When was I through there? It was this fall. So, uh, this past no, it was right. It was right before Christmas, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I visited them for. Two, three days, I was going through there to Chicago, uh, and uh, my go-to is a uh, four-way inverted. Okay, I can respect that. Interesting. You can get behind that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, the, the Having it inverted and having that the cheese melted on the bottom, oh my God. Yeah. Cannot, okay, I'll never not be thinking. I don't think I've never tried to get it, but I'll I'll try that next time. Oh, highly recommend. I don't know if okay. I'll ever be a fan of Skyline Chili, and I don't think Joe Burrow is either. So that'll be we'll see if the Cincinnati folk um, He'll come around. Come around. Yeah. It's an acquired taste, <laughs> but absolutely, uh, and, and it helps if it's like two a.m. and and you've had a few. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that always helps. I mean, look, there was a time where White Castle uh, or White Castles, as we called it, was. Um, <laughs> Uh, was was on the uh, was on the circuit. <laughs> it was either Sky Skyline or or White Castle, and, and Skyline is is culinary mastery compared to the White Castle. <laughs> That's so, a good point. There you go. Um, well, Rick, um, this has been incredibly enlightening and uh, just awesome to hear your perspective and hear your story. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think people like us um, really look up to you. Um, you've done so much for the game. You've covered it. And we look up to people like you that have been covering the game for decades to know what it's like, to know how things happened and really know the history of the game. Um, and your perspective um, cannot be matched. So, again, thank you for your time. I hope you and your family stay safe. Thank, thank you, you so much. Quarantine. Rick. Thank you so much. My pleasure, guys. Have a good one. Thank Stay you. safe. Take care. All right, guys. See you. Fans, thank you for tuning in to that awesome podcast with Rick Buecher. Fans, please tune in to his podcast. It's called Buecher and Friends. It's a daily sports podcast with inside information and awesome perspective from Rick Buecher himself, Ryan Holland, Will Blackman, and many more special guests. It's an awesome podcast, and Rick is an outstanding human being. Thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, this has been Outside the Zone. Yeah.